I do want to draw your attention this morning to John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. This text brings us to the end of the book of signs in the gospel according to John. So chapters 1 through 12, the first of two parts of this gospel come to an end here. And John the evangelist pulls out of the narrative for just a moment to reflect on this question of unbelief. It's tax season, and for many of you uh, who may do your own taxes, you might use the IRS's free fillable forms. And if you do, you'll know there's a, a do your math button on the screen. So you can enter in your own figures, and then you click do the math, and it will do the calculations for you and put, a, put the right numbers in the right blanks on the form. And there is a sense in which John is clicking the do the math button here in light of Jesus's ministry up to this point. And he's observing that the response is coming up quite short. The math isn't quite measuring up. And he has to wrestle with the question, how can this be explained? So verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The Messiah has returned, the Son of God, and people are not believing. This was a substantial issue that the earliest Christians were confronted with and had to address and explain. And we'll explore the answer that John gives for why this unbelief exists. That's part one of our time together. Second, there is a key nevertheless in verse 42. Unbelief was not the only response. Some did believe, and that's encouraging, but it's also ambiguous because we are left wondering if these believers were actually legitimate after all. They're unwilling to confess their faith openly and publicly because they're afraid of the Pharisees. And we're told, told in verse 43 that they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We'll call this partial belief, and that will be part two of our time together this morning. And then third, we'll turn to Jesus's words in verses 44 through 50 and examine these final words that he gives to the world as this section and this part of the gospel comes to a close. In a sense, this is Jesus's response to the unbelief and partial belief responses to him. Here are the words that he offers to bring clarity to his mission, person, and message. The fact that this final speech of his is neither connected in the words of a German New Testament scholar is intentionally neither temporally or spatially located indicates that its content is intended for everyone everywhere, end quote. So Jesus cries out and defends his ministry to the world, showing a clarity about his person and his motive and his mission as a response to these responses of unbelief and partial belief to him. So there's this response of unbelief, partial belief, and then somewhat in response to those realities, Jesus's words to everyone everywhere that we will consider. So part one, unbelief. How to explain the unbelief of the people of God? John taps into the scriptural tradition of God's history with his people and Specifically, he goes to the prophet Isaiah and he quotes in verse 38, Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The implied answer to these questions is not many have, really. We might remember from the words of Isaiah 53, 
that we will of course hear again during Holy Week, that this suffering servant had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. With this quote from Isaiah, John is offering some sort of explanation of the experience of Jesus. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Yes, the crowds had just welcomed him triumphantly into Jerusalem. And we'll look more at this next week on Palm Sunday. But they would quickly turn on him. And John is saying this is a fulfillment of what God had long ago prophesied, prophesied would be the case through Isaiah. The servant would be rejected. But why is the question? That's a wrestling question. And to answer this, John goes further in verse 39. Therefore, he says, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and he quotes now from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, there is mystery here. And I want to tread lightly in the right sort of way when we approach a text like this. At the same time, we need to say that John is not the only one to quote Isaiah 6 to explain the response or lack of response by God's people to the Messiah. This passage from Isaiah 6 is actually quoted in the first five books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And the sixth, Romans, Paul makes similar arguments. That means that when the earliest Christians were wrestling with this problem to explain the rejection of Jesus by God's own people, they found refuge in the words of the prophet Isaiah from chapter 6. This was not somehow outside of the sovereign hand of God, but mysteriously was part of God's intent. God had brought a judicial hardening upon his people. This is not to attribute evil to God. For this hardening is an act of judgment upon a people that had rejected him already. This hardening, this obduracy, this stubborn resistance to the word and works of God through his designated agent. This was a sign of God's further judgment upon his wayward people, both back in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day. In some mysterious way, God was the cause of this hardening, our text teaches. But the hardening was judgment for their sinful rebellion from him. It wasn't as if his people were in some neutral state and God took away their chance at life. It was more the case that they were already actively opposing him, running down a certain path. And God, in a sense, shuts the door for their return and, and, and resigns them to continuing down that path. He turned them over to their opposition to him more and more. In the words of Romans 1, God gave them up. So John says that they could not believe. Now, it must be said at this point that such texts about the hardening of the Jewish people have been woefully misapplied by the Christian church throughout its history to justify and promote violence and persecution against the Jewish people as a whole. Such actions are inexcusable, fundamentally contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
and a shameful and awful part of the history of the church. So when we teach a passage like this, one that has been misused by church leaders in history to encourage evil and wicked acts, we must repudiate the gross misapplication even as we teach the text plainly and be abundantly clear that the Christian persecution of Jewish people has no legitimate basis in the New Testament and no part in the kingdom inaugurated by Jesus. The Jewish people are those for whom Christ died and they are to be objects as are any ethnic group of the love, service, and care of Christians who make up people from every tribe and tongue and nation in any place, anywhere. We are to love all. One perhaps helpful way to understand what seems like such a harsh reality here is to recognize that this hardening is a penultimate word. In some ways, paving the way for or bringing about the reality that leads to the ultimate word of salvation and rescue. In fact, even in Isaiah's day, this word of hardening was to lead to a reduction of the people of God down to the point where they were left to be a stump. And then verse 13 of Isaiah 6 says, the holy seed is its stump. That is, this ministry of diminishment is intended to be the precursor to a ministry of redemption and rescue and salvation to new life. God's overriding umbrella intention is to save and to rescue. And the hardening of his people, and this is the point of Craig Evans in a 1982 essay on this topic, will lead to the cross itself. That is, the Jewish leader's rejection of Jesus is the means by which the cross as a historical event comes about, the saving act of all saving acts. Their rejection precipitates this act of salvation. An act of salvation, and this is really important, that is to apply to Jew and Gentile alike. Which is to say that this hardening is a penultimate word, a stark warning, yes, but one that brings about or ushers in the ultimate word of salvation, forgiveness, and rescue. I wonder how many of those about whom John the evangelist writes here and saying that they could not believe were among the 3,000 just about eight weeks later who heard the spirit-empowered preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost and repented of their sins and believed that Jesus was Lord and Messiah and began to form the very new thing that was birthing in the world of the church of Jesus Christ. I have to believe that many were a part of that group. Some of the hardened did come to believe and eventually to see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and repent and God healed them. So again, there is mystery here, but we must understand these harsher words under the umbrella of the larger word of God's mercy and salvation. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, to quote Paul in Romans 11, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Let's move for a moment from the particular problem that John 12 addresses 
about the particular people's unbelief in that moment in time of Jesus the Messiah to the more general problem with which we all wrestle. Why do so many continue to reject Jesus? Why don't more believe? There are, of course, New Testament texts that talk about the road being narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. There are others, of course, that seem to fling the gates wide open. As we saw last week, when I am lifted up, I will draw, Jesus says, all people to myself. So wanting to be faithful to the New Testament itself, we are then, as God's people, wrestling with this. But one of the things that we can say is that the power of sin is real. And the effects of sin upon the mind and the heart of every human being are such that we are blinded to the goodness, love, and mercy of God. We choose autonomy and pride and pain over yielding, humility, and healing, which God offers. And under the power of sin, quite honestly, we feel really good about this choice that we have made. This power of sin, when it is personified and personalized, is what we talk about when we talk about the devil and Satan. And we are held in bondage, and our wills are held in bondage to keep us from God by the devil. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We are held captive in sin. But this does not absolve us of our responsibility for our unbelief, biblically speaking. As if we can simply say that sin made me do it or the devil made me do it. And we are therefore not to be held responsible for our unbelief. Scripturally, unbelief to God is a culpable response. Something for which we are held responsible. The scriptures affirm human responsibility even as they proclaim divine sovereignty. And we've seen that throughout in our study of the Gospel of John. Later in his words, his final words, Jesus says in verse 47, that we hear his words and do not keep them. Or in verse 48, we reject him and do not receive his words. Jesus and the scriptures affirm personal agency and responsibility, even for those who are under the power of sin, that we reap what we freely choose. It is only by the grace of God, by the work of the Spirit, that we can come to true freedom, to faith, as Jesus said, and we looked at many weeks ago in John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Yes, there are mysteries here, wondrous mysteries. There is divine sovereignty and there is personal responsibility. That's what our scriptures proclaim. Let's move to part two, having considered unbelief. Let's think about partial belief. In spite of the divine hardening in verses 37 to 41, there is a surprising nevertheless in verse 42 that must check any overconfident readings of the hardening idea. 
because we are told that many of the authorities did in fact believe in Jesus. And we want to start celebrating and say, thanks be to God. That word of hardening wasn't, must have not have been for all because some at least, and we're told many of the authorities did believe. And yet, right as we start to celebrate, there is nuance again. And we, we start to get excited and the evangelist John seems to take away our gladness in some ways by telling us that this response of belief is not quite what it should be. They're afraid of the Pharisees. They're secret Christians, perhaps. A bit like the blind man's parents in John chapter 9. They will not confess their faith in Jesus because of the consequences of doing so publicly. Earlier, um, when we saw this in John 9, we understood that the big deal of being put out of the synagogue was that you were essentially shut out of everything about life and culture in that day. It would mean missing out on life as they knew it, becoming a nobody, someone on the extreme margins of society. And these partial believers weren't willing to risk that. The indictment in verse 43 is quite sobering. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And we're not sure really what to make of these partial believers. John doesn't give us an answer here. Was this real faith? Was God going to be merciful to them? We, we can't actually say from this text. But I think one thing that we can say very clearly is that John certainly does not want any of his readers in his own day or in subsequent days to be like those that he describes here in this partial believing kind of way. Because those that he describes at the end of chapter 12 suffer from the same disease of Jesus's opponents. If we go back to chapter five, Jesus says to the Jewish leaders who oppose him, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from, from the only God? To put this in terms that we used last week, to follow Jesus on the way of the cross is to die to our desires to please men. The cross puts an end to this in our lives. Paul is incredibly clear about this in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, he says. Our love of looking good if we do not confess it, repent of it, and repudiate it in our lives may well lead us to being included with these partial believers. It's an either or, really. And I honestly think the fact that in our region of the nation, at least in New England, it's becoming less and less fashionable to be a Christian is actually a healthy thing for Christian discipleship in many ways. It forces us to be willing to stand up and be counted, to say, I'm with Jesus, come what may. And this can deepen our faith and bolster our courage. We have nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to hide, and nothing to lose. I was talking with a young woman once about her life as a young teenager. She entered into a public school, middle school and high school, that had about 2,000 students. And it seemed in a school that prized tolerance, the one thing that it was fair to mock and ridicule was a Christian believer. At least it seemed that way to her. And so it was a time of tumult and challenge in her soul. At one point, the school invited, as they were thinking about diversity, they invited a speaker to come and address the school because of some racial issues that had come up. And the speaker did an interesting thing in an auditorium packed full of about a thousand kids. 
he began to identify different groups of people and how they might identify themselves. Is anybody here? And then he would say something and he would ask them to stand up and they would stand up and then he encouraged everyone else in the assembly to applaud those people. And he was going on through his list and this woman describes that experience of thinking, oh no, is this going to happen? And it did. At one point, the speaker, not a religious man, said, is anyone here a Christian? And there was this moment of trial in the soul. Will I or won't I? And in that moment, she describes, I stood up. And there were only a handful of other people, again, in an auditorium filled with about a thousand students. And the speaker had people applaud. And that was a moment, a significant turning point, this woman related to me, in her spiritual life and journey. Will we stand up and say, I'm with Jesus, come what may. I can become the subject of ridicule or mocking or exclusion. I am with him. That seems to be what John is encouraging us to here is to stand up. And that can, as we do that, that can bolster, as it did in this woman's experience, that can bolster and deepen our faith and our courage to walk faithfully with him in our present world. Let's turn then thirdly to the final speech of Jesus. These words to everyone everywhere. As he responds to these responses of unbelief and partial belief, Jesus speaks with great clarity on three things. His person, his mission, his motive, and his mission. He clarifies his person. The charge against Jesus from the Jews had been primarily a stumbling over him. He spoke and acted with too much authority, calling God his own father and making himself equal with God, or saying that he is the bread that came down from heaven, or saying that before Abraham was, I am. So what does Jesus do in this final moment of his public ministry by pounding? He pounds on the drum that he's been beating all along in the first 12 chapters of John's gospel, showing his solidarity with and dependence upon and even subjection to the father. He hides in a sense and says, I am with the father. And he says in verse 44 that to believe in me is not just to believe in me, but to believe in the one who sent me. And then in verse 45, he says to see me is not just to see me, but it's to see him who sent me. And then in verses 49 and 50, he says to hear me is to hear the one who gave me these words. Seeing, believing, hearing, all three of these, Jesus says, if you, uh, 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 if you assign those things to me, you're actually assigning them to the father whom I represent and whom I stand with in solidarity to. In his final words, Jesus is saying again what this gospel has been saying to us all along, that when you encounter me, you encounter my father. You encounter the creator of the universe. And there is no distinction. There is, of course, distinction, but there is identification. You can only know God by knowing and seeing and hearing the works and words of his incarnate son. No one has ever seen God. The prologue ends. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the claim, the scandalous claim, a particularity in Christianity and in this gospel in particular. That to know God, we must know Jesus. And to know Jesus is to know God. Our series has been called Come and See as a kind of invitation to come and see Jesus as we look at him through the lens of the gospel according to John. But let it be understood as Jesus makes clear at the end, to come and see Jesus is to come and see the eternal God. 
that this man who walked in Palestine 2,000 years ago is the definitive revelation of the unseen and eternal God. And this profound mystery is at the heart of our Christian faith. Jesus has clarity on his person. He has clarity on his motive. His motive is simple, salvation. Salvation of the world. So verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This is the sole purpose for his coming. He is, he is not here to judge. He's not here to condemn. And this actually makes us reevaluate or see through a different lens all of the judging that's gone on up to this point by virtue of his own presence in his words. We think of his, his encounter with the Jewish leaders in chapter 8, for example. That kind of division and judgment that is inevitable by Jesus standing in the world and making the claims that he made, that is not the reason that he came. In fact, he came for the very reason to save those people. He came to rescue. And while he accepts that his own presence will bring division, Jesus will be consumed by his passion to save the world. Zeal for your house will consume me, he says in John 2, quoting Psalm 69, and it does consume him. And then Jesus is clear about his mission. It is plain and simple. It is the mission to bring life. This is in verse 50. This is the commandment of his father, eternal life. When he was talking about himself as the good shepherd in chapter 10, he said, look, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus deals in life and he's here to save and saving means bringing us out of the darkness. He's come as the light, he says, and into the fullness of life, overflowing, abundant, never ending life. And he's so committed to this mission that he will give his own life that we might live. Clarity about his person, clarity about his motive, and clarity about his mission. Jesus' final words here to everyone everywhere are to be our words as well as his believing witnesses in this world that he came to save. We are to be clear about his person. We are to be clear and to share his motive. We are not to be known in our culture as critic and judge. We are not to be known only as those who defend and fight for our rights, though there is nothing wrong with doing so. We're not to be known for merely making this world more just in the way that we experience it, though we should work to do so. We are to be known as those who have a purpose to bring about the salvation of God into our world on behalf of our Savior and King, who shows us who God is. And our mission in this world is to be like the mission of Jesus. It is to bring life into the lives of men, women, and children here and around the globe by proclaiming faithfully Jesus, the Son of the Father, the one who makes the Father known in word and in deed. So Jesus' final words give the church a great model for what our message and mission is to be in the world. Clarity about him, a call to save, and a mission to bring life. I ask as I close, why would we not believe in him? Or why would we believe in him only partially? 
Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's pointing to his unity with the Father again. What else do we want? We were made by God for God. What else can we get that can compare to, to the life of God? There is really nothing. There are, of course, all kinds of counterfeit offers. And we may try them out over and over again, but they'll never really satisfy. But what Jesus offers to us is unique. And he says, when we drink of him, we will never thirst again. We can forego the glory of man. For we have now seen the glory of God in a man. A man and this is mind-boggling. Of course, we get to walk through this next week. But a man who was identified with God who then went to a Roman cross. God would die for you and for me. That we might now live. Why wouldn't we take our place among the great cloud of witnesses? And run the race with endurance, casting off the sin that so easily entangles and keeping our eyes fixed upon him. This is the only honor that matters. It's the only glory that matters, that lasts. You can throw us out of the synagogue. It is okay. As the author of Hebrews says, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Too many of us have a lasting city here and it keeps us from raising our hand and from saying, I'm with him. May God lead us more and more to associate and identify with Jesus in this world, not as judges and critics, not as saviors and rescuers, but as witnesses to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has come to bring us life. Let's pray. Oh God, we cry out. We do believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, take away from us partial belief. And grant to us by your spirit that we might believe into your son. And so identify with him in our world. How we thank you that your final word is a word of salvation, not of judgment, not of hardening but of grace and mercy. And Lord, we pray for all to hear that word and come to Jesus. May we be his faithful witnesses, we pray, by the power of your spirit and for his glory and yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.